If you have listened to the news over the last couple of days, you will probably have heard the word loyalist. Last Friday was the 12th of July. And if you live in Northern Ireland, the 12th of July is a significant day. Significant for everybody. Depending on your politics, it's either a day when you do all that you can to stay indoors, or it's a day when you take to the streets. And those who take to the streets call themselves loyalists, meaning that they're loyal to the queen. And they show their loyalty by marching with flutes and drums and banners. Maybe you've seen pictures of it. It's a bit like the Pelsol Carnival. Just with more noise, more alcohol, and usually more fighting at the end of it all. Apparently there was plenty of all of that last Friday. The 12th of July in Northern Ireland gives us one interpretation of the word loyalty. And I'm not going to discuss whether it's a good interpretation or not. I only mention it this morning because the passage we're going to look at happens to be a passage about loyalty. As we've been looking through the book of Zechariah, we've seen God unveiling his plans for a future city. A city without walls, God said. A city that will be filled with men and women from many nations. In our passage last week, God made a series of promises about this city of his. And the final promise was a promise of cleansing. The city of God will be a city cleansed from sin and impurity. And we've seen that throughout this book, when God talks about his future city, he's talking about his people, what the New Testament calls the church. Before I read Zechariah 13, which is on page 957 in the church Bible, before I read it, let me remind you of the context. At the end of chapter 12... God spoke about an unnamed individual who would be pierced, meaning killed. And it's the day of that piercing God is talking about in chapter 13, verse 1, which says, On that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. On that day, I will banish the names of the idols from the land, and they will be remembered no more, declares the Lord Almighty. I will remove both the prophets and the spirit of impurity from the land. And if anyone still prophesies, their father and mother, to whom they were born, will say to them, you must die, because you have told lies in the Lord's name. Then their own parents will stab the one who prophesies. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of their prophetic vision. They will not put on a prophet's garment of hair in order to deceive. Each will say, I am not a prophet. I am a farmer. The land has been my livelihood since my youth. If someone asks, what are these wounds on your body? They will answer, The wounds I was given at the house of my friends. Awake, sword, against my shepherd, 
against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds will be struck down and perish, yet one-third will be left in it. This third I will put into the fire. I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is our God. This is God's word. In verse 1, God says he will cleanse his city, his people, from sin and impurity. We saw that last week. Then in verse 2, God says he is going to do this by banishing idolatry. So we have to ask, what exactly is idolatry? We need to be clear on that. And we could define it as treating something that is not God as if it is God. Treating something that is not God as if it is God. It's a failure to give God the loyalty he deserves. And God says in verse 2, I will banish the names of the idols from the land, and they will be remembered no more. But why doesn't he just say, I'll banish the idols? Why talk about the names of the idols? Well, the main kind of idols in the ancient world were carved blocks of stone or wood. But in God's eyes, the block of stone or wood wasn't the main problem. The main problem was what people did with it. They took a part of God's good creation, they set it on a pedestal, they gave it a name, and they treated it as something more than a block of stone or wood. They treated it as something that could solve their problems and fix their lives. They treated it as something that was worthy of their devotion. That was the real problem. It was the worship of the idol, not the idol itself. You could be an idol worshiper even if you didn't have a little statue in front of you. So here God is saying more than just, I will gather up the little statues and throw them away. He's saying, I will break the power and the attraction of those idols. That's the significance of saying, I will banish their names and they will be remembered no more. God is saying, I'll deliver you from your enslavement to those things. I'll break the spell that they have over you. You'll no longer be charmed and infatuated by them. I'll break you free from the hold they have over your heart. That's much more significant than just taking a bunch of statues and throwing them away. Taking away someone's idol just leaves a frustrated idol worshiper. Taking away the power of the idol is true deliverance. And that's what God promises to do for his people. It's a wonderful promise. And we'll see later how God will do it. But in the rest of verses 2 and 3, the focus is on those who rebel against God's deliverance. We're told those who cling on to their idolatry 
will be removed along with the idols. And here God is speaking about prophets who are connected to idolatry. He's not talking here about his own prophets, men like Zechariah. The prophets he has in mind here are the ones who are keeping the idolatry going and spreading it. And he says about them in the middle of verse 2, I will remove both the prophets and the spirit of impurity from the land. And if anyone still prophesies, their father and mother to whom they were born will say to them, you must die because you have told lies in the Lord's name. Then their own parents will stab the one who prophesies. Remember the context for this. Back in chapter 12, verse 10, God pointed to a day when he would pour out a spirit of grace and supplication. Men and women would realize they had pierced God and they would mourn for what they had done. They would repent of their sin. But here God talks about those who cling on to the spirit of impurity instead of the spirit that he has poured out. They turn away from the cleansing fountain God has provided. They defy God's grace. You'll notice the word stab in verse 3. I'm sure you couldn't have missed it. It's the same word that was translated pierce back in chapter 12, verse 10. And the message is this. Those who refuse to mourn the fact that they have pierced God, those individuals will be pierced themselves. They refuse the one who was pierced for their salvation. And so they will be pierced. Verse 3 says their own parents will be the ones who pierce them. What does this mean? It means that among God's people, family loyalty to God is stronger than loyalty to our human family. It means that among God's people, our first allegiance is to the one who was pierced for us. I realize that this is a touchy area for some of us. So I want to say this very carefully. Some of us have unbelieving family members. Many of us do. And we want to do all we can to reach out to them. To let them know we love them. We want them to know we love them even though they don't believe what we believe. We want to keep close to them in the hope they come to Jesus. And we should do that. It's right and it's important. It's part of our God-given responsibility to our family. But let's ask ourselves, as I do all that, what message am I sending to those unbelieving family members? Am I sending the message that actually they're more important to me than Jesus is? Do they see my worship of Jesus taking a back seat whenever they're around? Because I don't want to upset them or turn them off. 
Of course we love our family members whether or not they believe what we believe. Of course we bend over backwards to reach out to them and keep our relationship going. But it is a good thing for them to know we love Jesus more than we love them. Put yourself in their position. Imagine for a moment you are an unbeliever. If you got the impression someone's loyalty to Jesus took second place to their family loyalty, then why on earth would you take Jesus seriously yourself? If someone seems willing to shove Jesus to the side to make way for family, then how important can Jesus really be? I'm not saying we should neglect our family in the name of doing church stuff. I'm not saying church busyness should come before family. God has given us our families. We have a responsibility to them. And I'm not talking about giving our family the cold shoulder. But each of us has to think this through. How can we find a way to love our families By letting them see that Jesus is more important than they are. How can we love them by letting them know God is the center of the universe? Not them. I wonder if in our eagerness to be sensitive to family, we sometimes end up making God and his glory seem quite trivial. Here in our passage, verse 3 is a verse that makes us uncomfortable. We probably wish that it wasn't here. But here it is. It pictures for us a father and mother whose loyalty to God trumps every other loyalty. Even their loyalty to a son or daughter. And so the question for us is this. Who comes first for us? And as we look at verse 3, we have to ask the obvious question. Does it mean parents should stab children who rebel against God? Well, remember, this is a prophecy. And throughout this book, we've been saying we need the New Testament to explain and understand the prophecies we find here. And the New Testament tells us that God is the one who will ultimately carry out judgment on rebels. In our reading earlier from Matthew 26, Jesus told Peter to put his sword away. Jesus himself will carry the sword when he returns as the judge. You and I don't have that responsibility. The main point of verse 3 is about where our primary loyalty must lie. And that certainly is repeated in the New Testament. These are the words of Jesus. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. 
I would imagine these words of Jesus make us just as uncomfortable as Zechariah 13. They show us we're not just dealing with an Old Testament teaching. This is a biblical teaching. And the core of it is the primary loyalty of God's people must be to God himself. What Jesus has in mind here are situations where family sets itself up in competition to him. Where family tries to make us choose between Jesus and them. He's not calling us to do evil to our families. He's calling us to put him first when our family is demanding to be first. God is not against family. He invented it. It's a blessing. That message is all through the Bible too. But the Bible tells us there is a greater blessing. The blessing of knowing God being a part of his family. We have a responsibility to our biological family to love them, provide for them, and care for them. And we have an even greater responsibility to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and strength and mind. It does our family good when we show them, not just tell them, but show them we believe God is worthy of all our love. The next part of our passage deals with a hidden loyalty to idols. Verse 4. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of their prophetic vision. They will not put on a prophet's garment of hair in order to deceive. Each will say, I am not a prophet, I am a farmer. The land has been my livelihood since my youth. If someone asks, what are these wounds on your body? They will answer, the wounds I was given at the house of my friends. The end of chapter 12 pictured many people mourning over their sin. But these particular individuals have no intention of mourning their sin. They're not trying to repent. But they can see the tide has turned against them. They know idolatry is being rejected all around them. So they just try to keep their heads down. They don't turn away from their idolatry. They just try to cover it up. That's what verse 4 means when it says they will be ashamed of their prophetic vision. Meaning their connection with idolatry. They haven't had a change of heart. They're just trying not to draw attention to themselves. So they don't wear their prophet's outfit anymore. Prophets stood out because they often wore hair shirts. That was true of genuine prophets of God. And idolatrous prophets apparently went for the same uniform. But here we're told they will set it aside. And in order to lie low, they'll invent a cover story, such as, I'm a farmer, honest, I always have been. But lying low can be difficult for idolaters. At this time, the rituals of idol worship involved cutting yourself. 
That was a feature of idol worship. 1 Kings chapter 18 tells us about a confrontation between the Lord's prophet Elijah and the prophets of Baal. We're told that as the prophets of Baal tried to get a response from their idol, they slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. That seems to be the background to what we read here in verse 6. Even though idol worshippers worshipers will try to be inconspicuous, sooner or later someone will notice the marks of their idol worship. They'll ask, what are these wounds on your body? And the response is, the wounds I was given at the house of my friends. The word translated house here is actually ambiguous. It can refer to a temple. So it seems this is just a way of trying to fob the question off. This man actually got his wounds worshipping at a pagan temple. But he's giving the impression it happened at his friend's house. There's no repentance here. He's just trying to throw people off the scent of his idolatry. And he still believes idols are his true friends. Even though all he has got to show from his association with them are wounds. I suppose it's possible some of us here have a little statue of Buddha in our living room. And I suppose it's possible some of us cut our bodies as part of pagan rituals. But for most of us, our idolatry will take a different form. And the New Testament helps us to identify it. Remember what we said about idolatry. It's treating something that is not God as if it is God. And this is what the New Testament tells us. First of all, in Ephesians, Paul writes to the church, Of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. So Paul says, never mind whether you have a little statue in your living room. Sex and money are idols too. Many people worship them as if they're God. We find the same thing in Colossians, along with a command about what we should do with our idols. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Zechariah 13 tells us idolatry doesn't belong among God's people. It doesn't belong in his city. And the New Testament says to God's people, this is what idolatry looks like. Here are some of the forms it may take in your life. And here's what you're to do with it. Put it to death. But sometimes you and I have another idea. Instead of seeking to root out idolatry in our lives, we work hard at trying to hide it. And that is not hard on a Sunday morning. It really isn't. None of you, including me, looks like an idolater this morning. 
But so what if we can fool each other? So what if I can convince you that I'm not greedy for material things? So what if you don't know about my idols of comfort and an easy life? The one person who matters is God. And I can't fool him. Our aim should not be to hide our loyalty to idols and throw people off the trail of our idolatry, like this guy who's trying to explain away the wounds on his body. No, our aim should be to put our idolatry to death. Idolaters do not belong in God's city. One day, every idolater will be locked outside his city. The end of the Bible, Revelation chapters 21 and 22, describe the new Jerusalem. That city that will one day fill God's new heaven and earth. And the end of that description tells us this. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates of the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. We need to put to death our loyalty to idols. Whatever form our idolatry takes, it has to go. Family is good, but don't idolize family. Sex in its God-given context is good. But don't idolize sex. Money is useful. But don't idolize money. Rest and relaxation are necessary for our health. But don't idolize rest and relaxation. It's lovely when people speak well of us. But don't idolize the good opinion of others. It's good to be willing to take responsibility and lead. But don't idolize power and position. And worst of all is trying to hide our idolatry. Owning up to it might be very difficult, but keeping it hidden is deadly for us. God sees it anyway. We might listen to all this, and as we listen, we might wonder what hope there is for any of us. Don't we all deserve to be left outside the city? Yes, we do, every single one of us. If we are serious about God, we will commit to putting our idols to death. But a long time ago, John Calvin pointed out that our hearts are little idol factories. Fighting against our idolatry is like playing that game at the fairground, the one where you have a mallet, and every time a head pops up, you have to whack it back down again. And that feels good for a second, but then two other heads have popped up. Our idolatry is like that. 
We dare not ignore it or get comfortable with it. And yet we all have a little idol factory in us. They keep popping up in our hearts. The Bible calls us to keep putting to death everything that pulls our loyalty away from God. And the Bible also tells us there is only one whose heart is truly loyal to God. There is only one who has never taken the devotion that belongs to God and offered it to an idol. And that one loyal individual is the only hope for idolaters like you and me. And Zechariah 13 points us to the only loyal one. Look at verse 7. A weak sword against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. What does this mean? Well, God is talking about his shepherd. We heard about God's shepherd back in chapter 11. Chapter 11 told us this good shepherd would be rejected by the people. Then last week we heard God speak about one who would be pierced. God said they will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him. And we saw last week, this person would be God, they will look on me, and also distinguishable from God the Father. They will mourn for him. Here in chapter 13, we learn that the good shepherd and the pierced one are the same person. In the Old Testament, the sword is a symbol of death and judgment. It doesn't always mean a literal sword. And God calls his own sword of judgment to fall on his shepherd. He also calls the shepherd the man who is close to me. Literally the man who stands next to me. The New Testament tells us this is talking about Jesus Christ. He is God's good shepherd. And the position of honor at God's right hand belongs to him. He stands next to the Father. And he's the one who took the sword of God's judgment in the place of idolatrous men and women. Verse 7 also says, The sheep will scatter when the good shepherd is struck. He will be left alone. He is the only one who will show true loyalty to God. And Matthew chapter 26 takes this one verse and it opens it up for us. It's a passage that was read for us earlier. It's a passage full of the fickleness of the sheep and the faithfulness of the shepherd. You might remember how that passage began. First of all, Matthew told us about Judas betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Judas was one of the 12 people who were closest to Jesus. His most trusted friends. And Judas was the first to abandon his loyalty to Jesus. 
And Matthew records how Jesus ate a meal with his disciples. And Jesus promised that he would be loyal to them. He promised to pour out his blood so their sins could be forgiven. And then at that meal, Jesus confronted them with their own disloyalty. This very night, you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. But when the crowd came to arrest Jesus, we read this. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Yes, later on, Peter came back to watch. He stood watching at a distance. But he did not keep his promise to be loyal. He did disown Jesus three times. And in that passage, in the midst of all this disloyalty, we find Jesus praying to his Father in heaven three times. Not as I will, but as you will. I will be loyal to you, Father, even to death. And he died alone. When God's judgment struck, Jesus took all the force of it himself. The only one who was loyal to God died the death of the disloyal. He died condemned as a blasphemer. Condemned as one who was disloyal to God. Look at verse 8. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds will be struck down and perish, yet one-third will be left in it. Who are the ones who are left? They're the ones who belong to the good shepherd. Yes, they scattered. They were all disloyal. But remember what Jesus promised them in Matthew. After I have risen, he said, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. The good shepherd rose from the dead. And ever since he rose from the dead, he has been seeking out his scattered, wandering, idolatrous sheep. Earlier in our passage, God promised to set his people free from the power of idols. And we're about to see how he fulfills that promise. We're about to see that the good shepherd not only gathers his lost sheep, he refines them after he has gathered them. He makes them fit for God's city, the new heaven and earth. Look at verse 9. This third, it's the third who belonged to the shepherd, I will put into the fire. I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. 
They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is our God. God's loyalty to his people. God is not the kind of parent who gives his children everything they want just so he can have a quiet life. No, God loves us too much to treat us like that. He's much too loyal to us to do that. God undertakes the hard work of refining us, making us fit for his city. Refining is a process that removes impurities. It purifies. And it's a process that can get very, very hot and very uncomfortable. But we can be thankful God loves us enough to do it. How does he refine us? He uses his word. He uses his convicting Holy Spirit. And he uses the circumstances of our lives. He uses all of those things to break our allegiance to idols. And to conform us to the image of his loyal son. Not everything we go through feels good. But it is always for our good. Our father in heaven is so loyal to his people that he refuses to leave us as we are. He has better things ahead for us. A new heaven and earth the home of righteousness, the New Testament calls it. And God will refine his people until we are ready to inherit that home. One day, by his grace, we will be free from our idols. That idol factory in us will be shut down for good. One day, we will be perfectly loyal to our God. And our part today is to turn from our idols to our Savior and to call on God to do his refining work in us and to keep doing it. We're going to ask him to do that as we sing together, Purify my heart, and then you are beautiful beyond description.